In this talk today, I will address certain points in regard to the practice of metta meditation. First, I will talk about its place in the Buddha's teaching, and then I will talk about metta as a relational practice, also with the question, who is your best friend? And also mentioning metta does not mean an approval of harmful actions. <clears throat> so metta meditation is a practice that falls into the category of samatha bhavana, concentration meditation or tranquility meditation. And for the practice of Samatha meditation, in the commentaries we have a list of 40 objects that can be taken for this kind of practice. So all of these 40 objects can be taken to develop deep concentration or one-pointedness of mind. Among the 40 objects are Anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath, in-breath, out-breath, or we have the practice of Buddha Nusati, the recollection of the Buddha's attributes, or we have the different Kasinas, which are devices of colored discs like red or white or blue and we also have the four Brahma Viharas the four divine abidings and as you all know metta or loving kindness is one of these four abidings one of these four boundless states. And you also know what the other three boundless states are, namely karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. So these four Brahmaviharas are wholesome states of mind which can or which have the capacity to deal with whatever we encounter in life. And I find that they are especially useful in my day-to-day -day life. So it would be very good. It would be very helpful if we always could dwell in these four uh, states of mind, Brahma-viharas, well, one state at a time. And so in this way, we would be able to meet each situation in our life, each encounter with other people. So to encounter everything 
in a wholesome state of mind. And this would also mean that we do not fall into our unwholesome, habitual reactions, like reacting with aversion or anger or jealousy, attachment and the like. So for example, instead of reacting with anger, we could dwell in metta and tell the other person in a friendly and kind way that the situation is such and such and that this and that uh, should be done. Or instead into falling into anxiety, we show compassion for the strong pain of our friend. Or instead of feeling jealous, we can rejoice in the success of our colleague at work. Or instead of falling into despair about the ever-increasing destruction of the forests in the Amazonas or in Indonesia, we could dwell in equanimity and then see what we act actively actually could do to stop this destruction of the rainforests. After the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Centers in New York in 2001, a service was held in Yangon in memory of all the people who had died in that attack. And this service was organized by expats living in Yangon. And they invited leaders of all the major world religions. So they invited a Christian priest, a Buddhist monk, a Sayadaw, a Hindu priest, a, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam. I didn't um, go to that service, I was not present, but I heard about it from Sayato Ujanaka, with whom I was practicing meditation at that time, because he had been invited to go to that service as a representative for the Buddhist community. At that time, I was reflecting what could one possibly say at such a ceremony in the face of such a cruel and mean attack? And I really didn't know what I would have said. And Sayadaw Ujanaka told me later that he spoke about the four Brahma Viharas. With that, he was pointing out that there are 
wholesome states of mind and heart that can deal with such cruel attacks and that it is actually possible to deal with them in a wholesome way. Of course, these four Brahma-viharas, these four states of heart and mind, they do not come quite naturally, especially in the face of real difficulties. Anyway, not for most of the people. But with these four Brahma-viharas, we can understand, first of all, on an intellectual level, that there are possibilities to get away from our unwholesome, destructive, and negative reactions. We develop these four Brahma-viharas by taking different kinds of person as the object for uh, our meditation. Taking different kinds of persons or living beings. So we see these four Brahma-viharas, they deal with living beings. And we all have a certain we all have a certain relationship to these beings. We feel very close to some of, the, of these beings. For others, we feel great respect. To other beings, our relationship is quite neutral. And in some cases, our relationship is tainted by jealousy, aversion, or anger, hatred. <coughs> and, of course, there are many people and even more uncountable living beings that we have never met, that we do not know. And yet, there is a relationship with them. It's a relationship based on our interconnectedness. In a way or another, we are connected with all living beings. So these four Brahma-viharas, they are all a relational practice. As I said, we deal with living beings who live in this world, or in this universe, or in these world systems. We deal with living beings wherever they may live. So coming back to metta, loving-kindness. So metta and lo or loving-kindness is always relational. It's an attitude 
that relates to beings, a relation with ourselves and a relation with others. And of course, the same applies to the other three Brahma-viharas, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. The relational level of metta becomes very obvious on the level of actions, physical actions, and on the level of speech. On these two levels, the relational aspect of metta manifests very clearly because we can see it with our eyes, we can hear it with our ears. So we see and hear the metta which is expressed either in bodily actions or in speech as kind friendly words. It's a bit more difficult to see or to know whether or not metta is present in a person's heart and mind. As I just said, the practice of metta meditation deals with living beings as they live in this world. And this means that with this practice we stay on a conventional level, on a relative level. So it's this conventional level where we talk about human beings, about animals, where we talk about men and women, kids and grandmas, friends, enemies, and so on. So we use these words to refer to all these living beings. We use these concepts in order to direct our mind to these persons, to these beings. We also use the words, the concepts of I or me, myself, to refer to ourselves. And in the practice of metta meditation, this is perfectly fine. That's the way to do it. Because some meditators think, or they may have heard, that in the practice of metta meditation, we should not use these words, me, or I, or friend, or enemy. Maybe based on their own vipassana meditation practice, or based on the more theoretical understanding of the Buddha's teaching, they know that the so-called me or my self or a soul does not exist. They may have even had a direct personal experience of anatta, non-self, the impersonal nature. And so with that experience they 
came to know and uh, realize for themselves that there are only these bodily and mental processes, that there is no me, there is no being, there is no woman or man, but it's merely processes of body and mind that are happening, seeing that there is no substantial entity that could be called the me, the self. So we have to understand that in the practice of Vipassana meditation, we do not stay on this conventional level. Well, at the beginning, at the outset of our Vipassana practice, we stay on this conventional level. For example, being aware of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, it's still the abdomen, it's still my belly that moves up and down. But gradually, then we come to understand that these words or these concepts are just pointers to these various processes in body and mind. And so then, through the practice of Vipassana meditation, we come to see and experience for ourselves that these processes are devoid of any substantiality, that they are uh, simply physical and mental processes happening due to causes and conditions. And so, when we come to experience these physical and mental processes in ourselves as mere processes, then we come to the absolute level. So on this absolute level, yes, there are no humans, no animals, no friends, no enemies, no me, nor others. We just have these dual processes of body and mind. However, with the practice of metta meditation, we stay on the conventional level, so we use these words and concepts referring to different living beings. So we use these concepts of me, my mother, my friend, my benefactor, and so on. And those of you who have practiced Vipassana meditation, then you can use these concepts, these words, me, others, friends, based on the understanding that on the absolute level, yes, there is no solid entity called a me or a friend, but understanding that with the practice of metta meditation, you stay on the conventional level.
So let me ask you a question. Who is your best friend? Who comes to your mind? Maybe in many of you, a close friend came to your mind, or a person you feel very close to, maybe a person you value and trust, or a person in whose company you feel happy and secure. Is there anybody whose best friend is herself or himself? Yes, we have such persons. <coughs> Godwin Samaratne was a beloved meditation teacher in Sri Lanka and he said meditation of loving kindness is so important in the sense that you learn to be your own best friend it's a simple statement and it's so true so if we can be our own best friend, then we have good company all the time. Then we can be happy to have such a good friend. Then we can be at ease with ourselves. Then we can accept ourselves just the way we are. Or then we feel held and understood. If we can be our own best friend, then we do not need to feel unworthy. Then we do not need to have a low self-esteem. If you are our own best friend, then we feel secure because we know that we can trust this good friend. And if we are our own best friend, then we are not dependent on what others think of us. But actually, when we look out there into the world, how many people can be their own best friend. In the West, it seems there are quite a number of people who suffer from unworthiness or a low self-esteem. A number of years ago, there was a conference of Western Dhamma teachers with the Dalai Lama and one of the Western Dhamma teachers spoke about the fact that many people in the West have low self-esteem, that quite a number of people in the West hate themselves 
or that they feel unworthy. So this was translated for the Dalai Lama. And he seemed to be a bit confused about what he heard. And what, what followed was a long back and forth between the translator and the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama could not understand the fact that people have low self-esteem, that they could feel unworthy, that they could hate themselves. To him, this was such a foreign concept, because in his culture, the Tibetan culture, this simply did not happen, or maybe just in very rare cases. To be your own best friend means that we have a kind and friendly relationship with ourselves, a relationship that is based on kindness, on friendliness, respect, understanding, and acceptance. As we know, a truly open and loving heart knows no boundaries. And such an open, uh, loving heart does not ask for conditions to be different. We do not need to be better, or we do not need to be more generous or more patient to be worthy of this unconditional love or kindness. A truly open and loving heart accepts any difficult situation or person without falling into the trap of reacting with aversion or ill will, frustration, dislike, resentment, or reacting with craving, jealousy, attachment. So, to be loving, friendly, open-hearted, and kind, these are all positive qualities that relate to metta, manifestations of metta, loving-kindness. You have heard that metta is the direct opposite of dosa which includes all forms of aversion, anger, hatred, ill will, frustration, resentment, and so on. Sayadaw Uindaka has written a book on the practice of loving-kindness and how it serves as a basis for vipassana meditation practice. He has written this book in Burmese, and I have translated it into English and also into German. There also exists a translation 
in Czech and also the latest one in Russian. So in this book, Sayero Uindaka describes the spirit of Metta. The spirit of Metta is the wish for the welfare and happiness of all living beings. There is never a wish for anything that is not beneficial. In the spirit of Metta, we always work for the benefit of other living beings. We never work to create unwholesome re results or to inflict suffering. The spirit of Metta is always and forever peaceful and cool. It never burns. The spirit of Metta is always loving-kindness. It never turns to hatred. The spirit of Metta is always soft, gentle and subtle. It is never rough and harsh. The spirit of Metta sees and looks at the good side. It does not search for faults or shortcomings. The spirit of Metta is always forgiving. It is not oppressive or controlling. The spirit of Metta works only for the benefit of others. It doesn't work for our own selfish benefit. But as you have heard many times already, if we work selflessly for the benefit of others, we too, we benefit from it, just as a natural uh, result. And now another point that I want to address in this talk. I think it is so important to understand that with the practice of loving-kindness we do not approve of a harmful action that has been done. It does, with loving-kindness we do not kind of accept that this harmful or unwholesome action was done either to us or to somebody else. So for example, when somebody has emotionally hurt us or if the person has injured us, so with the practice of metta, we do not approve of that action and say that this was right or that it was justified. With metta, we simply try not to react with anger, aversion, which means that we try not to fall into our unwholesome, habitual, patterns.
And if we can dwell in metta instead of falling into the trap of aversion, so with metta we can actually see more clearly because aversion, anger is always blinding. We are always carried away. And so then we can no longer really judge the situation. So with metta, we do not see the other person through the lens of our aversion or anger. But with metta in our heart and mind, we simply try to see this other person as another human being who also basically uh, wants to be happy just as myself. So to understand that we ourselves want to be happy, that we want to live at ease and in peace is so important because from this we know other people, other beings are not different in this regard. So here we can make this connection from heart to heart, simply the connection on being human or being a living being. As we know, pure and genuine metta is not dependent on any conditions. That's why we say um, it's unconditional love. It is limitless, has no boundaries. So metta does not select other beings in regard to what they do or what they don't do. With metta, we do not expect anything in return. So that's why our ability to be loving, friendly, and kind must be truly boundless, must be truly limitless. So in regard to these mean and cruel and harmful actions, you know, there is no doubt that such actions are unwholesome, that they are blameworthy, and that such actions need to be condemned because they lack any moral integrity. So the actions are blameworthy. But a person who commits such a harmful uh, action, can we see this person apart from his or her deed? And I think this is the great difficulty. Panteji or Pante Gunaratna, Sri Lankan uh, meditation teacher, 
He gives a very pragmatic explanation why we should wish our enemies to be well, happy and peaceful. He says, For all practical purposes, if all of your enemies are well, happy and peaceful, they would not be your enemies. If they are free from problems, if they are free from pain or suffering, affliction, if they are free from neurosis, from paranoia, if they are free from fear, tension, anxiety, then they would no longer be your enemies. With the practice of metta meditation, we have to work through different layers of defilements or hindrances, the five thieves that Sayadaw mentioned the other day. So we have to work with these thieves, the hindrances, the defilements, uh, until our metta gains in strength until it becomes uh, purer. So at the heart of this metta meditation practice there is a transformation that happens in our heart and mind. So it's a transformation of our basic attitude that we have in regard to ourselves and to others. And one of the beneficial outcomes of this transformation is the fact that we become our own best friend. As I said, the relationship with this best friend is one that is based on respect, on kindness, on friendliness, on understanding, acceptance, and open-heartedness. So here is an example of how this transformation works. It's an example about Sharon Salzberg, an American meditation teacher. At one time, she practiced metta meditation with Sayado Upandita, a famous uh, teacher in Burma. He had passed away last April. So, after intensive meditation, metta meditation practice under his guidance, she went back home and one day she dropped a plate. And the first thought that arose was, Damn, you're such a failure, useless, worthless. Because this was the habitual reaction, grounded in the very low self-esteem she had had 
for many years when she was young. But then, immediately after this first thought, another thought popped up, which was a complete surprise for Sharon. It was the thought, but I love you anyway. So through her intensive metta meditation practice, she had been rewiring her mind. So we can also see this practice as setting up a different default system. A default system that is more beneficial. Or we can speak of this practice as a deconditioning, a deconditioning of our unskillful and harmful reactions. Or we can see it as a new conditioning of setting up better, more skillful, more beneficial reactions and patterns. In the same way, as we go to the gym to strengthen and train our muscles, we practice meditation to strengthen skillful and beneficial reactions and responses. Brain researchers have found out that each repetition of a certain thought or each repetition of a certain reaction makes the grooves in the brain deeper. This means that the neuronal pathways in the brain are strengthened and with that the likelihood of falling again into the same thought or reaction then increases. And this is true for both wholesome and unwholesome uh, thoughts and reactions. So it's like a vicious circle. The more this happens, the stronger this habit will become. And as a result, in the case of the harmful, unskillful and unwholesome reactions, so as a result of it, it becomes very difficult to get out of these deeply ingrained habitual patterns. And what the brain researchers have found out nowadays, the Buddha had already found out more than 2,500 years ago. This is what the Buddha has said in this regard. And he was addressing a group of monks. So he said, Monks, 
Whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. So that's why when we engage in the practice of metta meditation, we frequently think and repeat these uh, beneficial metta wishes, and so with that we make it gradually an inclination of the mind, of the heart-mind, so that gradually this becomes the default system with which we react, on which we think, speak, and act. In regard to our habitual reactions, be they wholesome or be they unwholesome, so first of all, we need to recognize these patterns. With the practice of vipassana meditation, we come to see these many habitual reactions. So there, with mindfulness, we come to notice anger arises or joy arises. And then, after the first step, which is simply recognizing these habitual patterns, then as a second step, we should engage in a serious training to rewire these neuronal pathways. Of course, in the in to rewire them into a wholesome direction, weakening the unwholesome patterns, strengthening, cultivating the wholesome reactions and patterns. So I will end this talk with a quote from Acharya Buddha He died four years ago and he was an Indian monk. He was also a prolific writer. Before he became a monk, he was an engineer. He also joined the Indian army during the Second World War, but then at the age of 26, he became a monk. And it was him who established the Mahabodhi Society in Bangalore, India, with its branches, different places. So he said, if the quality of metta is sufficiently cultivated through metta bhavana, the meditation on universal love, the result is the acquisition of a tremendous inner power 
which protects and heals both ourselves and others. So may we all acquire this tremendous inner power of loving-kindness for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.